Thank you for coming to this episode of the Neuropsychology Speaker Series. We are privileged today to hear from Dr. Sarah Raskin. Dr. Raskin is currently a professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Trinity College, where she's also the director of the neuroscience program. She earned her bachelor's degree in behavioral biology from Johns Hopkins and then her PhD in neuropsychology from CUNY. She's licensed in both uh, Connecticut and New York as a clinical psychologist and uh, boarded by ABEP as in clinical neuropsychology. She's a fellow in neuropsychology and rehabilitation divisions of uh, APA as well as NAN. Dr. Raskin has received numerous awards and grants for teaching, service, and research, uh, including my personal favorite, the Mary Erskine Award, which honors faculty members who make significant scholarly contributions and who make substantial investments in mentoring trainees from the Northeast Undergraduate Research on Neuroscience, that acronym is NEURON. Throughout her career, her work has remained centered on research that's uh, clinically relevant in rehabilitation. And she's worked with some re cognitive rehabilitation pioneers such as Catherine Mateer and McKay Salberg. She'll be speaking to us today on the assessment and management of prospective memory in clinical populations. It should be noted that she's the developer of arguably the most sophisticated and comprehensive clinical tests currently available of prospective memory. I'd like you to help me welcome her to today. This talk was like five years in the making. They've been trying to like find a good day, but I'm excited to be here and I'm kind of excited that I have sort of personal connections on different levels with several people in the audience. So this is a, a great event for me. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about assessment and treatment of prospective memory and hopefully you all love prospective memory as much as I do. I know some of you do. If not, you will love prospective memory by the end of this talk. So I'm going to, I w didn't put in a slide about what prospective memory is, and I'm assuming that everyone here knows, but just to give you a brief uh, overview, prospective memory is the ability to remember to carry out intentions in the future, or the ability to remember to remember, people say. So to remember to stop on your way home and buy milk at the store, or to remember to call your doctor at the right time, or to call your mom on Sunday, or whatever it is that you might have to do in the future. So it's contrasted with retrospective memory, obviously, which is remembering things that have happened already. Prospective memory is typically assessed in the literature in three different ways. So the vast literature on prospective memory is in uh, healthy populations from the cognitive psychology literature. And that uses these laboratory-based tasks that I'll talk about in a second. There are just a couple of clinical measures. I, mine gets to be called sophisticated because it's one of two, right? So <laughs> But I'll walk you through what those clinical measures are and why we created one. And then, of course, there are lots of self-report measures. And just like self-report of any other cognitive function, they give you valuable information. But this information is not necessarily correlated with the information that you get from objective tests. Um, so while I think it's really important to always give self-report measures to get the experience of the person, um, I still think that it's important that you have some kind of objective measure. Laboratory measures were first created by Einstein and McDaniel back around 1990. Um, they tend to have an ongoing task, like categorizing words. Are these two words from the same semantic category? Then there's a PM task, which is if the two words are in pink, instead of pressing one for same category and two for different category, now I want you to press three for this was a PM trial or this was a pink trial. They tend to be event-based, and they tend to be very short time durations. So that's not a criticism of them. They were designed for a specific purpose, and they yielded us tremendous amounts of information that helped us understand what was happening in the healthy brain when somebody had to remember something. So in other words, you would say minute sapphire, and you would have to press one if they're the same semantic category, two if they're a different semantic category, until you saw this, CCCCC in yellow. And that told you that you had to do, on the next trial, you would press three, regardless of they, if they were the same or different, because that was a PM trial, and now you had to remember to do that. So does everybody follow the paradigm? Now, it's important that there's these other tasks, these same different trial tasks, or semantic categorization tasks, because one of the hallmarks of prospective memory that allows us to talk about it as a separate cognitive construct from, say, divided attention, or working memory, is that you can't just be staring at the task, at the clock the whole time. So it can't be that I say to you, when you see a yellow thing, press a button. 
or when it's two o'clock, press a button. Because in real life, that's not what we do, most of us. You're sort of not spending your day waiting for it to be two o'clock to call your doctor. You're spending your day doing what you do in your day. And then you have to remember to be checking for it to be two o'clock or checking for you to be passing the store on the way home. So it's important in any measure of prospective memory that there be this ongoing task that, that used to be referred to as a distractor task. Um, they changed the name because some of these ongoing tasks are just as important as the PM task. So um, there was a decision made to change it to ongoing. As I said, there are also um, self-report measures. There's quite a few of them now in the literature. The earliest one was by Hannon in 1995, at least the earliest one that I know of. Probably the one that's used the most, at least the one that we use the most, is the Comprehensive Assessment of Prospective Memory. This is out of David Shum's group. Um, used to be in Brisbane, Australia. He's just moved to Hong Kong. All of these, as I said, typically don't relate very well to objective measures, and I'll show you some data on that in a second. The reason I like the comprehensive assessment of prospective memory is because it has a self-report versus an observer report that you can compare. So you can ask a family member, or an aide, or a companion to fill it out, as well as the participant. It can be separated into basic activities of daily living versus instrumental activities of daily living. And it allows you to rate the frequency of the errors on a five-point scale. Most of these measures are just how often does this happen to you, you know, yes, no, one to three. In terms of assessment of prospective memory, there are quite a few interesting tests out there. These first three I'm going to show you are ones that don't have any normative data yet. But I know that um, the virtual week, Peter Rendell and his group are working hard on collecting normative data, so I'm sure it will happen soon. Virtual Week is a board game, so it's very fun. People like to do it. It used to be literally a board game on a piece of cardboard, but now it's uh, been computerized. So now it's on a computer, so to roll the dice, you click this dice. And depending on what roll you get, you go through the board, and it tells you to do things. And if you land on an E, that's an event card that you have to turn over that's going to say, return your library book before 5 o'clock today, or refresh your medicine prescription when you pass the pharmacy. All right? And so as you go through here, um, the clock is going. So there's a clock here that you can be looking at. So you'll be keeping track of time, and you can also be keeping track of where you are on the board. The Royal Prince Alfred, I've only seen published in one study, um, which was a group with traumatic brain injury. It's very similar to our MIST test. Um, it's a bunch of sort of activities that you do um, at, at, in front of the experimenter that are like touch your nose in two minutes, that kind of thing. The Miami Prospective Memory Test is a part of the Canadian Longitudinal Study, and it's been published in an aging population as part of that study. It's also brief to administer, which is really nice. Um, so again, I'm sure that they'll get normative data soon so that we'll be able to look at it and compare it to some of the other measures. The two measures that do have normative data are the CAM prompt, um, which is Barbara Wilson's test from England, and then the MIST, which is our test. The CAM prompt has three event-based and three time-based. So what I mean by that is an event-based task is a task in which something happens in your environment that you have to remember to do. So the, the oven timer goes off, and that means you have to take the cake out of the oven. Or you pass by the pharmacy, and that means it's time to stop and get your prescription. But an event, a cue, something in your environment happens. A time-based task is literally based on time. So that can be in two minutes, I want you to do something, or it can be um, at 3 o'clock. So either of those would be considered to be time-based. And in our daily lives, obviously, we do both of those. Right? Both of those kinds of things can happen. But as you can imagine, time-based are much more difficult. And most clinical populations show greater impairments on time-based tasks than they do on event-based tasks. And just to step back for a second and tell you that part of the reason I became interested in prospective memory in the first place was because when I was out in Seattle with Katie Mateer, we sent a questionnaire to everybody who was part of the Washington State Brain Injury Association. A big, long 
questionnaire of which cognitive deficits they felt impacted their daily life the most. And prospective memory just kept rising to the top. So although it's not studied a whole lot in the clinical literature, it is something that people continue to report really has an impact on their daily lives. And if you think about the kinds of things that somebody would have to do in their daily life that requires prospective memory, you can understand why. Now, of course, prospective memory is multifaceted, right? So I'll show you in a little bit, but it involves paying attention. It involves time monitoring and time sense. It involves executive functions. You have to stop what you're doing and do something else. And it always has a retrospective memory component, that is, remembering the thing that you were supposed to do. So all those things have to be working for successful prospective memory function. So the CAM prompt has three event-based and three time-based, and takes about 30 minutes to administer. That's a long time in an average neuropsychological evaluation. To give up 30 minutes to prospective memory is a huge time cost. And so this is something we're working on and trying to shorten things. The MIST, which is our test, the Memory for Intentions test, has four event-based and four time-based, also takes 30 minutes to administer. So we're actually just about to publish a shortened version of the MIST, which I can talk about if people are interested. Um, that basically, we removed some of the items, and now the ongoing task is like questionnaires that you might give people anyway. So like a health history questionnaire, or something like the Beck depression or Beck anxiety. We did a bunch of studies, and it looked like those were fine to be giving as the ongoing task. So you're not completely wasting that time. Both these tests have good uh, psychometric properties. And I'm just going to talk about the MIST in a little bit more detail, because it's my test. And because most of the data that I'll show you is based on data from the MIST. So as I said, it has two, it has two different time delays. Either two minutes or 15 minutes is the amount of time the person has to wait to do the task. Two different cue types, the event-based or the time-based. Two different response types, and I'm going to show you what I mean by these in a second. Two different response types, either an action or a verbal response, and the ongoing task currently is a word search puzzle. And we chose a word search puzzle initially um, because people like it, they're engaged, it draws their attention, we don't find that they're just staring at the clock, um, but it can be stopped. So if two minutes goes by, a word search puzzle isn't something where you're like, I can't stop now, I'm in the middle of this. Um, but we can talk about the questionnaires too. So as I said, the time delay is two minutes or 15 minutes. Q types are event or time. So an example of an event, when I give you a paper that says request for records versus time in exactly two minutes. And the response type might be, when I give you a paper that says request for records, write down the name of your doctor. Um, or in exactly two minutes, remind me to tell you when the next appointment is. All right, so does that give you a feel? or kind of what's in the test. It's these kinds of items over and over. Um, and as I said, the ongoing task is a word search puzzle, which looks like this. Um, wait, I just forgot what I was going to say. OK, so <laughs> oh, the reason we did action versus verbal is because way back in the literature when we were first creating this, um, we were reading about in healthy populations the action superiority effect. So the notion that if you tell somebody they're going to have to do something, they remember to do it better than if you tell them they're just going to have to report on it. And this was holding true even if they never actually had to do it. So if you just say to somebody, in 10 minutes, I want you to clap your hands, but 10 minutes later, you just say, oh, just tell me, what was it? They still remember it better than something that had been a verbal command initially. So we thought this might be a great, easy rehab strategy. We've sort of evolved to the point where we thought it was a terrible rehab strategy. And now we're back to thinking it's a good rehab strategy. So when I get to rehab, I'll talk more about how that evolution happened. But the first part of the evolution was that we were getting no bump from the action items versus the verbal items. So our population, which is mostly people with brain injury, were not any more successful when it was an action item than a verbal item. And I'll show you that data in a second. The MIST also has recognition trials at any point during this test were you supposed to. And it has a 24-hour item to try to make it a little bit more naturalistic. And the 24-hour item is, I want you to call my voicemail. So we have time-stamped voicemail still at our um, institution. So we say in exactly 24 hours, I want you to call this number. 
We tell them we want to know how many hours they slept that night, as if this might have affected their sleep. Um, but the timestamp tells us exactly when they called, so we know if they were early or late or didn't call at all. And this actually proves to be the most sensitive measure of any of this test, to be honest with you. We also have the ability to rate different kinds of errors. And so what we call a prospective memory error is no response. So that's the only thing we consider to be a true prospective memory error. And different people in literature have argued about this and have different opinions on this, which I'm happy to talk about. But we still have held to the idea that prospective memory error is you do nothing. You don't even seem to think there was something you were supposed to do. You just go on about your life as if nothing happened. There are, of course, other types of errors you can make, task substitutions, loss of content, which is clearly a retrospective memory error, loss of time, and then we just have a random error code for things that um, we're not really sure what happened. As I said, it has good psychometric properties. We compared it to the River Meads two prospective items, because at the time, that's all there was. Um, and this is work that we did, and also that um, Stephen Woods has done a tremendous amount of um, work with this test, including some psychometric measures. All right. And it also allows us to kind of analyze the process. So we can talk about, does their um, uh, performance on this test look more like an encoding error, a storage and monitoring error, or a retrieval error? So we can look at prospective memory in some of the same ways that you might look at retrospective memory. We did, ju I just published a study recently with uh, David Shum and Judy Ellis, where we compared the laboratory measures I described to you, the self-report measures I described to you, and the MIST. And not surprisingly, we found zero, there was nothing significant on any scale for the self-report measures and either of the other two measures. Um, but the MIST and the laboratory measure correct responses did a pretty nice job of uh, showing relationship. False positives on the laboratory measure um, correlated with errors, which makes some sense. Um, and I won't bother to talk about this in the interest of time. We had, like, were the same different categorizations related, unrelated, that kind of stuff. I'm going to talk now about some of the articles that are in this special issue that just came out in the Clinical Neuropsychologist. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm going to talk about um, work that's related to my work. But I just want to point uh, you, your attention, if you're interested in one of these populations, that this issue, um, volume 32, issue 5, has review articles dealing with um, each of these disorders and prospective memory, as well as some original research articles. So if one of these is of interest to you, um, Feel free to look it up. An overview of what these articles found. For the most part, as I mentioned, people are better at event-based than they are at time-based, which makes sense. You're better at remembering to take the cake out of the oven when the alarm goes off than you are at just remembering to take it out in 25 minutes. right? So for most populations, that's true. In this one research study, they found time-based was better than event-based, but I suspect it's an issue with their task because their um, participants actually were, in, were better at event-based tests than time-based tests, and that's very, very unusual. So it wasn't just that the differential between the healthy adults and the people with uh, schizophrenia or the first-degree relatives of people with schizophrenia didn't show the same difference between them, but they actually were better overall at event-based tasks, which is very unusual. So I think it's probably something to do with their tasks. And then no consistent finding here. I think there's a story to be told here. Um, at first, I thought the story was something about the aging brain, because we tend to see this, this lack of a consistent difference in populations who are aging. So for example, in people with Parkinson's who also show mild cognitive impairment, but not people with Parkinson's who don't, um, and that kind of thing. But the autism thing is an interesting addition to the list. So I think it'll, it'll be an interesting story as that comes forward of what's going on there. In terms of related neuropsychological functioning, of course, many of these disorders show that their prospective memory deficits are at least related to, if not explained by, executive function difference. And I think if you think about a prospective memory task, that makes a lot of sense. As I said, of course, for some of these populations, it's really primarily 
content problem, a retrospective memory problem. And for many of these populations, it's an ability to pay attention. And as you can see, for groups like brain injury and Parkinson's disease and HIV, well, actually for all four of these, it's both executive functioning and attention. In terms of errors, these are the groups that just show no response. Folks with Parkinson's also show a loss of time. I think this is really interesting. And I'm really interested in pursuing the question of time sense, not only in Parkinson's, but also in brain injury. And we have a little bit of data that I'll show you. Loss of task in people with mild cognitive impairment. And then the folks with Parkinson's also showed some task substitution errors. Do you have any questions? Yeah. Why not, uh, in your overview, where you showed their executive and attention, uh -huh. what about learning? Yeah, so I mean, I think, so these are, what I'm showing you here is people that gave a prospective memory task and a test of attention or a test of retrospective memory. So nobody kind of, this isn't my data, nobody sort of published here's like the HVLT first three trials score or anything like that, but I'm sure absolutely you would see if somebody has a learning deficit, it's going to probably show up here, you know, that they're never going to learn the content of the task. Yeah. That would be my suspicion. Because, you know, it seems to me and, and that the, the event base is acute. 100%, yep. And so if they've learned something and the cue comes up, they can pick that up. But if they didn't learn it, maybe the cue means nothing. So actually, that has been talked about a lot. And especially in the like autism ADHD literature, really what they're seeing is that the cue isn't salient. Yeah. The cue, they're, they're way more interested in other things in the environment than they are in this specific cue. The um, adult population, you don't see that as much. But um, so what we'll see is either they'll do nothing or they'll say, oh, yeah, I was supposed to do something. Right. But the cue usually triggers something. But in the developmental population, that's a really common finding. And also has led to some of the theories about what they think is going on in terms of brain function in these kids. And why is the salient cue not salient? You know, and what can you do to make it so? Yeah, that's a really good point. OK, so I'm just going to walk you. Yes. Is that a good time? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, based on the con contribution of the executive function to prospective memory, based on the contribution of the executive function to yes. prospective memory, uh -huh. um, I know you said there's not much memory data, but I was wondering if it's something that also becomes more mature and reliable after your 20s, since the- uh, As your frontal lobes develop, yes. Oh, yeah, so there's really good in the healthy population, really good developmental data on the trajectory of how prospective memory develops. And in fact, as you would predict, event-based abilities come first. And then, so they come by like, you know, the end of elementary school. And then middle school and high school is when time-based abilities start to grow. So, you know, don't tell, give your middle schools time things to remember, give them event things to remember. But <laughs> But yeah, the whole, I'm not a developmentalist, but the whole, the, there's a huge literature on how prospective memory develops. And it really, what it, it core, it's just following the path of myelinization of the frontal lobes. I mean, that's really what they're looking at. But it's really, it, it's interesting, and there aren't good, there aren't good yet pediatric measures of prospective memory, which is what we really need to look at it in clinical populations. There's a good literature in using those laboratory tasks, but not a good literature using clinical tasks. Yeah. I have a piggyback question off of there, that's actually, um, so um, it, it's regarding the respective um, memory and, and healthy controls, but in younger kind of cohorts. Um, so I'm just wondering from, like, let's say an evolutionary perspective, if we as humans are somehow maybe losing the ability to have prospective memory. Um, because anecdotally, like when people's phone dies or breaks or whatever, they forget everything. Yeah, they can't function yeah. anymore. Um, and so the concept of pre-cell phone technology of you actually have to remember where you're supposed to be and when and to do things without having um, non-cognizant reminders. Um, so kind of. I also saw, you know, looking at healthy aging, I mean, this is a, a cohort who was pre-cell phone era. Right. And so I'm wondering, um, again, there's no, as, as you said, good kid measures for 
uh, respect to memory, but I'm wondering if this new generation has such a heavy reliance on technology, which is a compensatory strategy, that they never built up the true self-inherent strategy um, as they're seemingly solely relying on compensatory strategies. Yeah, I mean, so lots of people are asking that question, and, it, and as you rightly pointed out, it's a double-edged sword, so on the one hand, we're telling kids, don't use spell checkers, don't use calculators, don't put everything in your alarm in your phone, or, yeah, because you won't develop those skills. On the other hand, we're telling an older population who hates technology, well, it would be so easy if you would just plug everything <laughs> into your phone, right? Um, so, you know, I think it's a tool, I think technology is a tool. And I think you're asking really important questions about the limits of that tool and what happens when your battery dies. Um, but I, uh, like from a rehabilitation perspective, you can't rehabilitate a function that was never truly there. <laughs> so it, it causes us to kind of rethink paradigms of rehabilitation in this upcoming kind of cohort. Grew up in the age of I was a seven-year-old with a cell phone versus I didn't get my first cell phone until I was well into my 30s, you know, for this well, it's interesting. So I'll talk about some data, some uh, naturalistic data on college students versus older folks, where the older folks do better. Um, that, <laughs> that I think partially has to, has to do with motivation and other things. But I, I, I would argue for you against, as an interesting thing to think about, in contrast to what you're saying, that I think kids today have so much more to remember. Like even with their cell phones, they are so much more that they're so much more cognitive load that they're trying to keep track of than a generation ago. That maybe it evens out a little. I mean, we'll we'll have to wait and see. I don't know. Yeah. Uh -huh. So for the whole rest of the mist, we don't allow them to write anything down, which is a big difference between the mist and the cam prompt. So the camp prompt, they're allowed to write things down. They're allowed to use any compensatory strategy they want. For the mist, we don't allow them to. But for the 24-hour, we say nothing. We don't tell them they can't. We don't tell them they should. We figure it's a naturalistic task. What would they naturally do in their environment? Whatever that is, that's what we're measuring. Yeah, I mean, they can plug it in their phone right then. And then we just know they're a person who can successfully use that compensatory strategy in order to remember things, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a limitation of the task, but, and we don't know who uses a compensatory strategy and who doesn't. We don't know who calls their wife and says, help me remember, right? We don't know anything. So it's a, it's a. <laughs> so now you know. I need a wife, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yep. Some of them, so we work specifically with traumatic brain injury, moderate yep. to severe. Yep. So um, some of the high functioning individuals, what I see when I administer is that even if they do forget, they have that ability to guess. Uh -huh. So when I hand them a postcard, that's the one that they kind of do the best on because like their immediate one is to self-address it. Yep. So that's something like I kind of record is like I have a feeling that they guess on this. So two things I'll say to that. One is we go back and forth when we're doing treatment. We don't let them guess because of the literature on error-free learning, which now is mixed and we're not sure error-free is better. But based on the notion that error-free is better, we don't let them guess. But the other thing that we're, we've just collected a ton of data on that I can talk about is, um, so on the MIST, what you noticed is there's a huge relationship between the, ta the cue and the task to be performed. So you give them a postcard, they write their name on it. You give them something that says, request for records form, name and address, it's kind of obvious you're supposed to write your doctor's name and address on it, right? So all of the tasks on the MIST were specifically designed to be related because we wanted it to be kind of pseudo-naturalistic. But I think that that makes it different from the kind of test that says, you know, when I hand you a piece of paper, draw a red flower on it, you know, that you wouldn't naturally do. And so we've just been looking at comparing those two types of tasks and what the effect is on people with traumatic brain injury. Um, and it's a huge effect, as you would imagine. So I think that says two things. One, it has an effect, and two, 
in rehabilitation settings, you should start with things that have a good relationship and then you can slowly move away. Any other questions? Yeah. With the virtual week task, yep. are the participants allowed to hold on to the event card throughout? Like the event says, uh, the card says perform this event at some time in the future. Do they hold on to that card? So, so on the um, computerized version, they click and see the card, and they can click and look at it again anytime they want to, but it, it turns back over. Has anybody used virtual week? It's kind of fun. <laughs> like I, I use it mostly with, um, with an older population, like mild cognitive impairment. For some reason, they really love the idea that they're playing a board game. Any other question? Right, that's correct, right? Just want to keep track. All right, so I'm going to go through the clinical populations kind of quickly, but I can answer a question if you want because I want to make sure I have time for rehabilitation strategies. Um, so the questions we were asking in the healthy aging study is, you know, like you were asking about development, we were curious about decline. So as aging changes in the brain happen, what happens to prospective memory performance? We also were interested in what's been called the aging paradox. And so this is what I alluded to before. There's this interesting finding in the literature where in the laboratory, young people do better than older people. That's, I'll show you some data, it's very consistent. In the real world, on what are called naturalistic tasks, older people do better than young people. And so we were curious about whether that would come out in the mist, and we were also curious about whether we could mess with incentives and things like that to try to, yep? Yeah? Yeah. Given all the media attention to millennials, like I sometimes also feel like there might be limitations to what we conceive to be a naturalistic environment uh -huh. for age groups. Even when you mentioned how this had was like pseudo naturalistic approach by giving a health-related form, uh -huh. an eighteen-year-old who doesn't visit anything health-related is going to be differently than a fifty-year-old who is probably had to be part of the healthcare system. So I was wondering, what is your take on how well us as scientists, how well do we do in understanding what is a naturalistic environment for younger pediatric populations? So for pediatric populations, the naturalistic tasks I've seen are like, remember to turn in your math homework. You know, so they try to like come up with, it's all very school-based and academic-based. Um, again, I don't do a lot of developmental works, and so and our test isn't for kids. Um, but yeah, I think it's very a school academic based. And you're right, there's lots of things you could be having to remember naturally in your environment that you probably care a whole lot more about than your math homework that isn't being measured by these things like, you know, trading Pokemon cards with Tommy before the Pokemon Go thing expires on Friday, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, my kids, I missed Fortnite. Phew, they're older, but I hear all about it. <laughs> Yeah, or like the Webkins thing, remember you had to go on every day in order to get, your thing always reminds me of Webkins, in order to get, uh, to get like a prize, you had to do it every day. I don't know what it was, anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, you had to feed them or they died, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know of any natural tests that are measuring those kinds of things, but it probably would be a great idea. Um, and then we were interested in whether prospective memory might be an early marker of people with MCI converting to dementia. So I won't, I don't, you guys don't do a lot of aging work here, right? I'm starting to do a little bit. A little bit, so I'll go through this quickly. So I told you that laboratory studies, older individuals perform more poorly, whereas on naturalistic tasks, older individuals are unimpaired or even superior. The idea is that laboratory tasks require greater cognitive control, and this may be related to frontal lobe functioning. Um, and so this is just on our MIST. This is separated into three groups, 20 to 30, 40 to 50, and 60 to 70. And what you can see is by the 60 to 70 year old group, which is arguably very young, they, um, <laughs> you have a little bit of a drop off on event-based cues, but not significant, but you are already seeing a significant difference between the other two groups on time-based cues. So by 60 to 70, you're having a significant, what you might call impairment in time-based cues. But if you look at the naturalistic task, these aren't significantly different. So um, the older folks are even maybe outperforming, the younger folks certainly aren't impaired. 
the way they are on the laboratory task. And at one year follow-up, what we did was we took those in the oldest group that did greater than 30 on the MIST and compared them to those who did less than 30 on the MIST. We brought them back a year later and gave them a dementia rating scale and a mini mental, and we saw that there were significant differences on both these tasks for those groups. So this was how they did on the MIST a year before, and now how none of them would have screened for dementia the year before, but now a year later, the MIST seemed like it was a one possible um, predictor marker of what was going to happen. We also did a study on people with schizophrenia. And in this case, we were really interested in whether it was related to their ability to remember to take medications, because that, of course, is such a huge part of managing this kind of a chronic illness. And also, um, you know, we saw a lot of folks coming through who were non-compliant, and we started to wonder whether that was really just forgetting. You know, that they look like they've got good memories in other ways, but yet they seem to be forgetting doctor's appointments and medications and follow-ups. So we gave them the MIST, we gave them a medication management, we gave them a virtual reality, which um, I won't, I'm not going to describe here because it didn't turn out to be very helpful. I could talk about why. Um, so we gave them Patterson's medication management where they're given pill boxes. They're just beans, they're not real pills. Specific dosage, time of day, and whether to take it with food, and you score them on whether they remember to do this accurately. And what we found was, so the healthy adults are the lighter colored bars, the people with schizophrenia are the darker colored bars, and we had significant effects on the mist on almost everything. Um, where they were doing worse, they were, the difference was more pronounced for time cues than it was for event cues, but there were significant differences for both. If you looked at the kinds of errors, they were making these PM errors, these forget that anything even exists that you're even supposed to be responding to. And we saw a nice um, correlation with uh, medication management. So, you know, it would suggest that if you have somebody, especially somebody with schizophrenia, who's doing things that seem to be non-compliant, that maybe it really is just a prospective memory error. Um, with Parkinson's disease, we were interested in kind of this altered time sense. This is something I'm still really interested in. And so um, we had somebody design for us a measure of time sense. There's probably better ones out there, but this is what we used because there were lots of good retrospective, what I'm calling retrospective time sense measures. So an example, the screen flashes. You've got a bunch of letters coming through on the screen and you have to press the space bar if you see the letter A. And then the screen flashes again. It might be one minute later, five minutes later, or 10 minutes later, and you say how much time has passed. But to me, that's retrospective. How much time has passed, right? You're looking backwards. So I wanted a sense of prospective time. So in this case, the screen flashes. You press the a button if you see an A. But you also press the space bar after you believe a minute's gone by, or five minutes gone by, or 10 minutes has gone by. Does that make sense? So in terms of people with Parkinson's, we saw a big effect on time-based tasks. We did not see any effect on event-based tasks. This was a very uh, high-functioning population. Um, so that may be why there are some studies that have shown deficits in event-based tasks. But all of these studies have shown this differential effect, where time is more affected than event is. And when you look at our time estimation task, what you see is on shorter times, they do fine. But as the time delay gets longer, their estimates become really significantly longer than reality is. Does that make sense? So it, it suggests that their perception of time passing is not accurate. And this would, of course, make it really hard to successfully do a time-based prospective memory task. If you think you don't have to look up yet because it's only been one minute when it's actually been 10 minutes, you're going to miss the task just because you don't think it's time yet. Um, we also did a study of uh, Trinity College students and drinking. <laughs> some of them drink, not all of them. So <laughs> some of them really, really, really drink. <laughs> so this was part of a larger study on drinking behavior in college students. Trinity was one of three sites. And um, so I, to get them to embed the, a prospective memory task into this big battery that we were giving to every single freshman for four years 
at three different colleges, I couldn't do a whole mist. Um, but we were interested in drinking behavior, and we were also interested in negative drinking outcomes, and in this case, we focused on blackouts. So the time-based task now is they were taking surveys. You know, they were doing surveys on a computer. So record the current survey question on a colored sheet of paper after 15 minutes of working on it. That was, so you had to keep track that 15 minutes had gone by, and if it did, write down, I got to question number three in 15 minutes, or I got to question number 12 in 15 minutes. The event-based, we tried to make really important, we apparently didn't succeed, but we said, if you want to be paid for doing this test, then you have to remember when you finish the computerized cognitive task to hand this cash voucher to me. You won't get paid if you don't remember to hand the cash voucher to me. All right, so that was the event-based task. We classified students into non-drinkers, those who had never consumed alcohol, light drinkers, and heavy drinkers. And heavy drinkers were basically binge drinkers. Um, so just to give you a feel for how much these drinkers drink, they drink a lot. <laughs> so non-drinkers are blue, light drinkers are brown, heavy drinkers are green. This is weird. Why are the non-drinkers having blackouts? <laughs> but the reason is because the scale for blackouts we're using, one equals never. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, but you can see the heavy drinkers, they drink. Um, so this is how many drinks in the past 30 days, how many binges in the past 30 days, which is four drinks in a setting for a woman, five drinks in a sitting for a man, how many blackouts, this is how many blackouts they're having a month, like drinking until they've blacked out. And then uh, what's the maximum number of drinks they've had in a 24-hour period. So uh, what we found was heavy drinkers already, these are, remember, 18 to 22-year-olds. And they're already showing significant impairments on time-based prospective memory in the heavy drinker group. No problem on event-based um, with drinking. Not that I'm saying you should drink. And not that light drinking is good for you. I have some theories <laughs> about that. Probably is. I mean, other studies have shown it is. But anyway, I have some theories on what's going on with these non-drinkers. These non-drinkers are really interesting. They perform really poorly on executive function tasks. So we eliminated out anybody who's a non-drinker for religious reasons or you know, medical reasons or that kind of thing and, and actually exacerbated the effect. So I think there's, you know, there's some interesting things about the kind of person who goes to college and has never, ever, ever had a drink in their life. And I think what we're doing is probably that, not 100% of the cohort, obviously, but, but there's, it's pulling for a population in that cohort that maybe is a little bit black and white thinking, maybe a little bit on the high end of the autistic spectrum scale, something like that, maybe what's happening, I don't know. But I don't want to make too much out of what they're doing here. And then in terms of blackouts, we did get a significant relationship, even with event-based prospective memory. So we got a significant relationship between the number of blackouts they'd had in the last month and their performance on the event-based task. So these are very, very young people that are already showing an effect of this drinking behavior. And it would be interesting to follow them and see if when they get out of college, if they stop drinking at these rates, does this recover? Which hopefully it does. Yeah? The time-based impairments, though, uh, developmentally, would, there already, would they already be, um, there wouldn't be, they would be fully developed in terms of? Well, but this is compared to an age-matched cohort. So this is comparing non-drinkers, light drinkers, and heavy drinkers. So wherever they should be, they should all be. Right? Unless you wanted to say that you think that people with poor frontal lobe development are more likely to be binge drinkers and also more likely to do bad on prospective memory, which is possible. Um, and we did, there is a whole slew of um, measures of impulsivity that we also gave them. And of course, that group is much more impulsive than the other groups. All right, so then I'm going to talk to you about kind of where I spend most of my time which is working with people with traumatic brain injury, both in terms of assessment and in terms of cognitive remediation. So we just wanted to see what their prospective memory looked like and whether we can make it any better. So that th this is a real product. <laughs> so we want to avoid people having to use this. That's the purpose of the study. <laughs> but you can order it if you want. The to-do tattoo. <laughs> 
So this is the battery of neuropsych tests we gave. You can see it's basically attention, memory, and executive functioning. We also gave generalization measures. So these are the kinds of generalization measures that we gave. I will say that the one that works the best for us most of the time is our diary study. So we sit down with the participant and uh, somebody else in their life, an aide or a family member, and we say, what are 10 things you actually have to remember to do this week? So think about it. Like Think about the upcoming week. What do you need to do? Well, I need to buy socks. I need to make a doctor's appointment. I need to renew my driver's license. And so we write those down. And then uh, they go about their life and they do these things. And the person that we train to follow them around gives them a score, zero, one, or two, on how they did on each of those tasks. Did they do it completely right? That's a two. Did they do it at the wrong time or the wrong task? That's a one. Did they not do it at all? That's a zero. And then they also is a place for them to note if they used any compensatory strategies to help them remember. So in terms of the myths, this is very consistent. We found this over and over again. They're really bad. Um, so they're impaired on two minutes. They're way impaired on 15. T the longer the time period, the worse the impairment. They're impaired on event-based, but they're more impaired on time-based. So now I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of cognitive remediation strategies, unless you have questions just about how people with brain injury do. So prospective memory has serious consequences. It's important to be able to remediate it if you can. <laughs> it's my favorite prospective memory cartoon. <laughs> so generally, when we think about approaches to rehabilitation, how many people do cognitive remediation? Oh, not that many. Oh, I thought, OK, good. Oh, so then I get to tell you things. All right, so you can modify the environment, so putting up color-coded things so they know which room is theirs, leaving their pills out so they have to see them when they get up in the morning, post-its, training family or coworkers. Those are all modifying the environment. They don't make the person's memory any better, but they make them more functional. You can do compensation devices, like we were talking about, smartphones, planners, electronic devices. CogSmart has a lot of uh, compensation in it. Planners and notebooks, which you all know instinctively you can't just give somebody a planner or a cell phone and say, here you go, put everything in there, you'll be fine, right? You need to train them. And there's some great, McKay Solberg and some other folks have some great articles out on how to go about training somebody to use these kinds of compensatory devices. You can do direct interventions like um, McKay and Katie's attention process training, um, functional skills training, behavior modification or medications. And then you can work on metacognitive skills like awareness, goal management, which I'll talk about in a minute, self-regulation. So how aware are they of their need for prospective memory? How aware are they of when they make mistakes, when it's likely to fail, and what kind of strategies would be useful? Um, and so obviously, what I'm doing really here is working across from greatest impairment to least impairment, because these are going to be most useful for people with the greatest impairment. These are only going to be useful with people that are fairly mildly impaired. And I will also say that I wouldn't, for any one person clinically, only do one thing. So I think you're always going to do some environmental modification. You're always going to use some compensatory strategies, even while you're doing direct interventions or metacognitive training. And we can think just about compensatory approaches for a minute as being ex internal versus external. First letter mnemonics do not work with people with brain injury very well because it requires too much attention. And so you're asking them to use a device that pulls on exactly where their deficits are. Visual imagery, on the other hand, has been really successful. And I'll show you a study that we did just using visual imagery with people with brain injury. And when you're thinking about a remembering device, a compensatory device, obviously these are the kinds of things you need to keep in mind. I think this is probably um, obvious to most of you. The population that I work with, none of them have smartphones. And none of them have Wi-Fi in their house. So I go to Europe, and they say, why don't you just give them all smartphones? <laughs> and they can't believe that there's huge populations in the United States that can't afford smartphones. But obviously, there are. 
Um, I will say some of the greatest work on compensatory external memory devices in brain injury is Barbara Wilson's work with NeuroPage. But again, it's not something that you could probably replicate in other countries, especially not this one. So she had this, through the Public Health Service in Great Britain, this central computerized station where you would call in and say, here's what I need to remember this week. And they would carry around a pager, and the person in the central office would program everybody's pagers. And people were really successful. And not only were they successful at responding to the pager, but after wearing the pager for a while, they didn't need it anymore. Like it was enough to cue them that they had to be remembering things. Obviously, we're not doing that here. But um, it's really, really great series of studies. Yeah? Um, I have a question about, <coughs> so seeing the alerting mode. Um, so for Pellminder boxes, mm -hmm. Exactly. So you've just put your finger on exactly why you can't just hand someone a phone and say use it, or hand someone a notebook and say write everything down that you have to do, right? Because you're not going to remember to do it. You're going to lose the notebook. You're going to never use it. Yeah. So because um, it, it reaches a certain point as as the decline progresses, where you know, a lot of these strategies then don't. Yeah. Come. Absolutely. But the families who still want to have their you know, loved ones. So that there's a lot of good, so one thing is you might give up on having them fill the pillbox, right? And just have their sense of independence come from remembering to take the pill when the alarm goes off. You can leave everything out right where they eat breakfast every morning with instructions, with a little card that says one, two, three, four, here's how you fill the box, right? You can have an alarm go off that reminds them to fill the box. You can have an aide remind them to fill the box. I mean, there's lots of, one of the great things is um, as people start to have more cognitive decline is to think of it more as behavior therapy and less as cognitive rehab. And so, you know, you might give them some kind of reward when they remember to do something. You might also, it's good like with memory notebooks to tie it to a meal in the beginning, so something routine. So every time you eat a meal, check your notebook and see what you're supposed to do today, that kind of thing. So there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of literature out there on exactly how to do what you're Talking about it, it's a huge issue for sure. Totally, I've, I've noticed in a couple of patients that I've seen before is like as decline, it's an inverse relationship. Yes. Decline like goes down, the stubbornness also. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the sense of loss and anger and frustration for sure. So like it becomes like uh, a lot of emotional. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's another thing, that's another good point is you can't really do cognitive rehabilitation in a vacuum, right? And so I have a slide at the end that just sort of says you have to be thinking about mood and emotion and grieving and sense of loss and where do they live and who do they have in their life. I mean, all those are also important, really important variables. And so that, you know, the other important thing is that you have to be planning for generalization. So McKay always says one of the biggest mistakes people make is to train and hope. Right? You sit them in your office, you do some computerized cognitive training, and you figure, well, it should help. Right? <laughs> and so instead, you know, we argue that it's really important to plan for generalization, to identify reinforcements in the natural environment, and to measure generalization. Um, so yeah, so compensation can only go so far. Right? You have to, at some point, give up on just compensation devices. I'm going to move through this. I think I'm going to move through this just that our brains change by repetition, right? So you need to have lots of trials. People, insurance companies don't like to hear that, but it's the reality. So the first study, we compared rote repetition to visual imagery, to goal management training, to cue elaboration. And I'm just going to show you what those look like. So for rote training, it's just really much rote training. So you have a time delay. You start at a very short delay where they're going to have success, so like 10 seconds, 30 seconds. You give them an ongoing task, and you score them. Press play on the stereo. Put the red pen on the table. 
push your chair back, open the file cabinet. You just do this over and over again, and when they get success, you increase the time delay by one minute. Visual imagery, um, this is modeled after Grilly and uh, Elizabeth Gliske and Gr Matthew Grilly. Imagine you're performing the task, imagine with as much detail as possible. Describe to me, and we have a whole sheet, which is like, what do you see, what do you hear, what time of day is it? And goal management training, um, this is Brian Levine's work, really great stuff, he's got a whole package you can buy where you basically define the goal, list the steps, ask yourself, do I know the steps? If yes, do it. If no, go back. Check, am I doing what was planned? So this is for, we've separated these out, and so this is what we give to somebody who's got a pretty high level of attention and memory functioning, showing some of those executive function deficits, and having prospective memory errors. And then finally, we looked at elaboration of retrieval cues. This is similar to visual imagery, but you're focused on the cue. What will the cue look like? What will it sound like? Where will you be when the cue goes off? What are you doing right before the cue goes off? So what's so if you're supposed to stop at the grocery store and buy milk, what's going to be happening when you see the grocery store? And so this is what we found. We found that rote repetition worked the best, and that second was the visual imagery. And on the diary study, the only thing that really affected the 24-hour diary was the row repetition. So it's, nobody loves it. It's not fancy, but it seems like it's effective. A few reasons why it might be effective. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. We did do another study more recently just using visual imagery. Um, and we did find that the group, that they did show improvement with visual imagery. So visual imagery is effective. It just wasn't as effective as the row repetition. And then this is just an interesting thing to show you. We brought them all back in a year later and found not only that did they not um, decline in performance a year later, they actually continued to improve. And so one of the theories is I think what you were getting at a little bit, which is the notion that they're now using it all day every day. So what you have to do to get somebody to use a memory notebook or a phone, is you have to get their prospective memory span long enough that they can remember to use the notebook or the phone or the pillbox, right? You can't have a 10-second perspective memory and use a pillbox. You can have a 10-minute perspective memory and use a pillbox. Um, so the idea is that they're probably practicing it every day in their daily life. And the I'm going to move through this. Study two, um, now we're, we did a big double-blind active control versus treatment group. I won't go through what the active control was, and we also did some fMRI. So I'll just, uh, we have, this is all on our website. So basically, based on their performance on the MIST, we decide, is their primary problem attention, intention retrieval, encoding, planning, or time perception? And then we have individual modules based on what we think their, um, what they need most in terms of cognitive remediation. And so some of these things are like straight up attention training or increasing cognitive load, how many things do they have to remember to do at once. Enactment, this is the idea that they acted out first, and this is actually we've been finding to be super effective in this group. The visualization, cue focality I haven't talked about, but this is how related is the ongoing task to the prospective memory task. So if the ongoing task is a word search, is a prospective memory task, push a button when you see an A, those are pretty related. If the prospective memory task is clap your hands, those are not related, right? The cue intention relatedness, you brought this up earlier, the idea that the thing you have to do is related to the cue. Goal management, implementation intentions comes from literature on behavior change, like weight loss or drinking cessation, where you actually say, I am going to do this, and that causes you to remember to do it better. It hasn't been particularly effective, but we're still working on it. And then just time perception training. I'm going to move through this and just show you. So this is at baseline, the prospective memory task versus the ongoing task, just to show you we got great activation in BA10 and the areas that you would hope to get. <coughs> so this is cognitive remediation. Uh, the cognitive remediation group I'll just show you. Pre and post is the first two bars. So what you see is we got good improvement pre and post. In the active control group, we did not get any significant difference and on the generalization measures. And then this is how they did um, in these frontal regions, pretreatment versus post-treatment. So we're hopeful, we're continuing to collect some data, and we're hopeful that we can show 
that were actually affecting something about um, brain activation networks. So we talked a little bit about this already. I think I can stop here. Memory self-efficacy. There's some people have done some great work now on kind of the idea of diagnosis threat within prospective memory. So if you have an older person and you treat them like, oh, your memory's bad and this is a really hard memory test, they're going to do worse on it than if you make them think they're going to have a success. Um, and then I think uh, we need to really be starting to think about individually tailored treatments, the idea of kind of personalized medicine within cognitive remediation, both in terms of the severity of illness and the severity of their deficits. And that's it. Sorry I kind of whizzed through the end, but I'm happy to talk to people afterwards. Thanks. For more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.